Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. It's been so rewarding and so fascinating to kind of watch the bond between people and their animals, you know, and, and kind of follow that through American history. Now, can you clarify for us uh, what happened with the president's dog? Jen, I'd like to ask about three things, if that's okay. The, the dogs, immigration, and then Governor Another Bush. dog's question, okay. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch and something a little different on today's episode. We all need a break from just the ongoing disaster of world politics and the pandemic and everything else. This and the dogs can provide that is Andrew Heger. And I am the historian in residence at the Presidential Pet Museum. It sounds way more pompous than it actually is. How long has the Presidential Pet Museum been around? The museum itself has existed since 1999. It was started by a woman named Claire McLean. She used to groom Ronald Reagan's Bouvier de Flanders dog, Lucky. (laughs) And um, she started keeping some of the hair and bringing it home. And her mother was using it in mixed media art. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Anyway. Uh, Who else? Andrew knows. Oh, John Quincy Adams' wife did have silkworms. A lot. Which, I don't know if you call those a pet. About presidential pets. I don't know if that part's apocryphal because I don't know how much silk a silkworm produces. And maybe she was just doing really, really tiny bits of embroidery. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So either way, it's weird. Beyond silkworms that may or may not qualify as pets. Andrew's interested in how the history of presidential pets tells its own kind of history of our country. The first question I always get is, what are the exotic or strange animals that presidents have had? And one of my favorites is Rebecca the raccoon, who belonged to Calvin Coolidge. (laughs) The, The story here is great. Somebody in Mississippi decided to send Calvin Coolidge a Thanksgiving meal and sent him a raccoon. Now, (laughs) I don't know if they still eat raccoons for Thanksgiving in Mississippi or if that was just a very special gift or if he was being pranked. Um, But in in those days, they didn't have the refrigeration, you know, and it took a while to travel. You'd had to go by train. So they sent a live raccoon for the Coolidges and the Coolidges were animal lovers. They couldn't kill the raccoon. They decided instead to keep her as a pet. They bought her a, a jeweled collar that said White House Raccoon, which she wore, and they built her a little habitat in a tree outside the Oval Office so that the president could watch her while he was working. I love that story. I also love uh, Teddy Roosevelt had a badger among several dozen pets that the Roosevelts had between the White House and their home at Sagamore Hill. He was on a whistle-stop campaign tour around the country, and he was in Kansas, And a little girl came up to him with a badger in a basket and offered it to him. And he said, oh, of course, I'll take your badger. And there are a lot of questions here. Like, one, why does this little girl have a badger? (laughs) Two, how does the Secret Service letter get near the president? I mean, I know this is, you know, pre-Kennedy assassination, but McKinley had just been murdered like two years ago. You know, like, how's this girl getting up there with a badger? And three, why do you take it? But Teddy (laughs) Roosevelt was a big naturalist. He loved animals. And they they built a home for the badger at the White House. But of course, badgers being badgers, it was too destructive and eventually had to go. Mm -hmm. There's a story that Martin Van Buren had tiger cubs. And uh, I used to always tell that. But it turns out, like upon further research, that it's actually not true. It's a conflation of a couple things. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody had offered him lion cubs uh, at an embassy in Africa 
And while the people at the embassy were trying to contact the United States and see if they could send the gift over, the Lion Cubs destroyed part of the embassy and were then not accepted. (laughs) Somehow that became Tiger Cubs over time. And the story was that he had them in the East Room at the White House and eventually Congress made him get rid of them. Um, which I always thought was great because it showed a time when the legislative branch was more powerful than the executive branch. Mm -hmm. But again, not actually true. (laughs) Um, Same with John Quincy Adams and the alligator. It's probably not real. There's the story that the Marquis de Lafayette gave John Quincy Adams an alligator while he was touring around in the 1820s and that Adams kept it in a bathtub at the White (laughs) House. But the earliest reference we have to that is from the 1880s, I believe. So it's not contemporaneous and it's probably just apocryphal, but it's a great story. So how did presidential dogs become so iconic? You know, President Trump was the first president in, I think, 120 years not to have a dog. Mm -hmm. So how did having a first dog, quote unquote, become such a visual part of the office? I think there are a couple of things there. I mean... Americans are a dog-loving people, so I think part of it is that when you have a democracy and our leaders are pulled from the common man or supposedly from the common man, um, the odds of getting somebody with a dog, uh, that's pretty good. But the other part of it is that people discovered fairly early on, um, you know, at least in the 20th century with Warren Harding and Laddie Boy and then Calvin Coolidge with Rob Roy and Prudence Prim. They discovered that these dogs are really great for campaign photos. Mm. Um, they, they become symbolic of the president in, in a certain way. Uh, when Harding died, and this was before everybody found out just how corrupt his administration was, newsboys around the country collected pennies and melted them down into a statue of Laddie Boy, which is at the Smithsonian currently. And so the dog itself was a symbol for Harding. And then in 1928, when Herbert Hoover was running, he was well known as a bureaucrat and as a humanitarian, but people didn't really see him as anything other than this bureaucrat. So his campaign had the idea, we're going to take a picture of him with his dog. He had a Belgian shepherd named King Tut, and there's a picture of Hoover and the dog that that they started passing out as like on campaign posters and on uh, little postcards and things like that. And so that was probably the earliest time where a president like very openly used the dog in a campaign and it was successful. Hoover, Hoover won election. Um, and of course, after Hoover, then you get FDR and Fala and Fala is like so iconic during the battle of the bulge. Fala was so well known that American soldiers trying to make sure that Germans weren't infiltrating their lines, pretending to be American would ask the question, what is the name of the president's dog? And obviously if you were American, you would know that it was Fala. You know, so by that point, it's become ingrained, this idea that presidents have dogs and um, it's just part of what they do. And every president since then, up until Trump, has had a dog. Actually, uh, I think the previous president who didn't have a dog was William McKinley, who was assassinated in 1901. So, yes, you're going back quite a ways to get to another president without a dog. Mm. As someone who's sort of into dogs and knows about breeds, you know, what do different dog breeds sort of say about different presidents. What's surprising to me is that Labradors, which are our currently most popular dog in the United States, and and being legally blind, I have a Labrador who's my guide dog, so I'm partial to them. But we've only had one Labrador with a president, and that was with Bill Clinton uh, and Buddy in the late 90s. But we've had a number of uh, German Shepherds and Belgian Shepherds and Scottish Terriers, and it doesn't seem like there's any real correlation between 
the president and the image they're trying to present and necessarily the dog, you know, like um, mm. like German shepherds, you see them and, and they're often used as guard dogs or as police dogs and things like that and, and sort of a, a more aggressive kind of posture, which is not to say that shepherds themselves are necessarily aggressive, but just that that's kind of where your mind goes when you see one. And Joe Biden has has a German shepherd, had two of them, and that's not really the image he was going for, right? Like, he wasn't going for this, like, ass-kicking guy with his German shepherds. He was just like, hey, I love shepherds and these are my dogs. And, um, you know, FDR, who was famous for having Fala, also had a German shepherd named Major at one point. Really? Uh, but, yes. Now, Biden's Major famously has nipped a couple of people. All right, let's just call it what it is. A major problem at the White House. Major the dog making headlines again. He has nipped someone for the second time. But FDR's dog, Major, actually tore the pants off of the British Prime Minister at the first uh, state dinner in the White House in 1933 <laughs> and had had to be exiled from the White House. Yeah, that's not exactly the kind of soft diplomacy they're probably going for. No. <laughs> no, that's not part of the special relationship. If we have to send out presidential aid to get new pants for the prime minister, that's bad. <laughs> Are there sort of key examples of times that dogs have been, like first dogs have been used to provide good optics or have been used to deflect or distract from sort of a bad political situation? Well, the, the obvious example happened outside the immediate context of the White House. It was uh, checkers with Richard Nixon in 1952. I want to tell you my side of the case. Checkers never made it to the White House because Nixon didn't actually become president until 1968. And, you know, Checkers had passed away by then. But in 52, Nixon was accused of this scandal. I'm sure that you have read the charge and you've heard it. Supposedly, he had received donations improperly from a bunch of supporters and they had been used to pay for things that they weren't supposed to pay for. But I, Senator Nixon, took $18,000 from a group of my supporters. Now, was that wrong? And let me say that it was wrong. And he gives this speech on television and he lays out his finances. And then partway through the speech, he says, One other thing I probably should tell you. There is one gift we got that I'm not going to give back, but I have to talk about it. You know what it was? It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog. It's a little dog. Black and white. Named Checkers. Named Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. You know, and it becomes this very sentimental moment in this speech. And the American people kind of rallied to Nixon's side at that point. Uh, by some estimates, they were getting telegrams like 75 to 1 that he should stay on the Republican ticket. Uh, when Eisenhower had actually expected Nixon to resign during the speech, um, he had mm -hmm. kind of directed him through an intermediary to resign from the ticket and let Eisenhower pick someone else. And Nixon just came out and sort of saved his own bacon with this dog. And uh, it's one of the most obvious examples there of a, of a dog being a very political tool. Mm. There's nothing quite like that when you get to the presidency, but there, there are so many examples of presidents, um, you know, trying to use their dogs as public relations. Like Gerald Ford used to have his dog Liberty, like they created a little rubber stamp of her paw. And so when people would write in about Liberty, they would get a pawtograph back of this little paw print. You know, the Bidens use their dogs 
to promote wearing a mask in a commercial that aired during the Puppy Bowl this year mm-hmm. instead of the Super Bowl. So I, I thought that was interesting because it was very, uh, very clearly bringing the dog out to promote a public health issue uh, and use the dog on something on a campaign that was unrelated to animals itself. Yeah. Please keep wearing your mask even when you're out walking your dog. Right, guys? Do you ever imagine pets giving advice to their presidents? Like if if, if we could have like a <laughs> caption this contest and Checkers had made it, what do we think like Checkers would have told Nixon during Watergate? <laughs> oh, God. Um, don't mention me. Um, <laughs> Keep my name out of it. Yeah, like you already used me once, buddy. That's enough. <laughs> you know, like I'd like to think that if Pushinka, Kennedy's dog, who had been given to the Kennedy family by Nikita Khrushchev, if she had been able to speak during the Cold War, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, she would have encouraged him not to nuke Russia, you know, where her mom lived, uh, <laughs> but rather to do something peaceful, which is what Kennedy ended up doing. Uh, and it's kind of remarkable that he did that peaceful stuff, considering that, you know, his own military advisors were telling him, like, hey, maybe we should just go nuclear and get it out of the way first so we can eliminate most of their sites. I mean, it was a very Dr. Strangelove moment in American history. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Pushinka would have had better advice than, say, Air Force General Curtis LeMay. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Who's your favorite presidential dog? Well, my favorite presidential dog, I'm going to go with Pushinka. Again, I, I love the story that she comes from the Soviet Union. And this is a time when everybody... You know, people are building bomb shelters in their backyards. You know, we were scared to death of the Soviet Union, and they were the enemy. And Khrushchev sent this puppy because Jackie Kennedy offhandedly asked for one when they were sitting together at a summit. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like the dog gets there, the FBI has to come and, and like, check the dog for wiretaps and and bombs. People thought that it was, (laughs) like... Tap yeah, yeah, like right? there might be some kind of explosive device inside the dog that when the president's playing with it, it'll blow up like uh, like something out of Get Smart or something. Um, but Grizzly, you know, like I, I think I, I've read at least one historian who said that the back channel exchange of gifts between Kennedy and Khrushchev was one of the things that allowed those two guys to step back from the brink of nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I think in part we are alive because Pushinka was sent <laughs> to the White House. I, I know it's more complicated than that, but it's just one of those things, like, it's hard not to love that story. It's hard not to hear that and go, hmm, you know, and sort of see the power of dogs. Because somebody who gives your family a puppy is probably not entirely evil and worthy of bombing. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> nice talking to you. Have a great day. Andrew Hager is the historian in residence at the Presidential Pet Museum. Today's episode included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to subscribe to Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet. And while you're here, also check out some of Politico's other podcasts, like Playbook Deep Dive, Playbook Daily Briefing, and Politico Energy. Dispatch will be off Monday for the holiday and back on Tuesday. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. What happens in the corridors of Davos? What's being whispered in the UN smoking lounge? I'm Ryan Heath, and for the better part of a decade, I've been there, reporting on the world's most powerful people. But I had a whole career before this. On the other side, working for the very people I now cover, as a spokesperson, speechwriter, and strategist. 
So I've seen them at their best and their worst moments. And I know what trade-offs they make because it used to be my job to make them. What's it sound like when a CEO dodges a question? And what's behind a prime minister's long pause? Of course I'm worried. We're doing this in a pandemic. We all have to be worried. Uh, We need to see what kind of government the Taliban form. Every week, starting September 15, I'll bring you close to the business leaders, regulators, innovators and lawmakers who run the world. Like NATO's Jens Stoltenberg and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the US ambassador to the UN. They'll describe their vision for shaping the world, and you'll understand what that future means for you. The balance of power is always shifting. Global Insider is how you keep up. So come on, subscribe to Politico's Global Insider wherever you're listening.